The following podcast may contain explicit content, which is, I suspect, why many of you are tuning in in the first place. It's Friday, April 22nd, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is denying he said on January 8th that he asked Donald Trump to resign. Here now the January 8th tape of Kevin McCarthy asking Donald Trump to resign. The only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass, and it would be my recommendation we should be done. Um, I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he would take it. We're not sure if he actually did ask the president. I don't know. Kevin McCarthy does not seem to hold some of the basic qualities that would prompt him to do such a thing, like bravery or a stiff spine or a non-fungible sense of right and wrong. Definitely knows how to make the right move for the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives. I have no real opinion of Kevin McCarthy, which is, I think, how he likes it. Like, no specific opinions about the quality or character of the man. I know what his decisions have been as relate to his job. They're pretty consistent with someone who will fecklessly determine what he thinks are in the best short-term interest of his party. And, you know, he's probably right. He will take a licking from Donald Trump and keep on ticking along because for some reason he likes to be Speaker of the House. You know who he is? He seems like the sort of guy who doesn't like not wearing a suit. If you like politics, well, no one likes politics these days, but if you follow politics and you watch it visually, you know what Kevin McCarthy looks like. But out of the suit, would you be able to recognize him if you encountered him in a context other than he's wearing a suit, he's standing behind the lectern, or maybe on a on a set next to Martha McCollum, would you know how to place Kevin McCarthy? Wait, is that the coach of the Iowa Hawkeyes? Wait, was that guy the local weatherman where I grew up? Wait, was that the cardiac surgeon who kind of breeze through when my dad had that heart infarction. They all look so similar. Kevin McCarthy seems not to be paying a cost for any of this. In fact, at this point, less than 24 hours after the story broke, and we heard the tape, I think first on Rachel Maddow, New York Times had it around the same time. It's from a couple of New York Times reporters. But that's my point. At this point, the New York Times reporters who got the scoop, Jonathan Martin and Andy Burns, have been in for more criticism than Kevin McCarthy. How do you hold this scoop for months? Why not release it just to sell a book? Well, selling books, that's important. Without the selling of a book incentive, you'd be less motivated to report the facts. But that's not the real reason. I don't really believe that that much. It's that this isn't a case where there's some actionable intel that needed to be aired forthwith. I guess people are saying they wish they knew this earlier, but who's doing the wishing? The Republican Party doesn't. They've never really cared about MAGA Nation running away with democracy. If we had known this sooner, maybe something would have been different. But who's the we? What would we have done? Liz Cheney knew it pretty early. She didn't release it. I mean, she knew it when it was happening. She was the person that he was telling that to. What would have played out then, I say, is exactly what's playing out now, which is nothing. That's my point. McCarthy denied it. He got caught pretty much lying. Now he has to acknowledge it, and nothing's happening to him. His position isn't weakened. Like Trump back on the tape we heard, he's not going anywhere. Wouldn't have then, won't now. Wouldn't have experienced shame then, won't now. 
Nothing's going to change his fortunes, Trump's fortunes, or any of our fortunes, I would have to say. Maybe it will change Burns and Martin's fortunes. Let us watch the New York Times bestseller list when their book publishes next week. On the show today, Marjorie Taylor Greene is testifying under oath in Georgia, and she tries to remember how many times she called for the death of Nancy Pelosi. It's, it's a real stumper. But first, Christine Emba is an op-ed writer for the Washington Post who took a long look at the culture around sex for women like her in their 20s, men too. Sex positivity, nice slogan, kind of an unworkable reality, so Emba wrote, Rethinking Sex, a Provocation, and it provoked me into the interview that's coming up next. One of the reviews of Christine Emba's new book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, used the phrase, a bleak romantic landscape. Now, the fact that this phrase doesn't immediately smack us in the face as an oxymoron does tell you how bad things have gotten, because romantic means idealized, and bleak is, of course, the opposite. But when you hear about bleak romantic landscapes, especially if you're dating, and especially, especially if you're a heterosexual woman dating today, there would be no amount of oxymoron and just a great amount of truth to that assessment. Christine writes a number of things in her book. Let's maybe start off with the idea that consent is a floor and not a ceiling. That's getting a lot of attention, as is the work overall. Welcome to The Gist. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So I love the idea. Consent is a floor, not a ceiling. But my question was, I mean, I like the phrasing and framing. Did practitioners of, did people having sex while this was the dominant way of thinking about it, did they really mistake the necessity as being sufficient? Was this something, in other words, that people went out, they internalized the idea that consent is extremely important and they told themselves, well, that's the only thing that's important? You know, I think that there's been a little bit of confusion in the role that consent is is meant to play and how much sort of airtime it's given when we talk about sex. I think in sort of modern sexual culture, we have come to believe that almost a reflexive sex positivity is the most important thing. We think that we have been told rather that sex is great. The more sex that you have, the better. You shouldn't repress yourself or be inhibited. The only real boundary that you need to respect is consent. Everything past that is sort of up to your own decision making. As long as it's two consenting adults, you can go after what you want to go after. And in this understanding, you know, sex is a thing that you want and consent is the bar that you have to clear to get it. But this is consent as sort of a legal permission, just the floor that you need to clear. And the focus on consent doesn't actually push people to ask the question that you're asking. Was the consent fairly gotten? Does this encounter that I'm having uh, bring a better social world into place? What is actually good for me and my partner, not just what I want? Right. So there, there's a couple things there. Was the consent fairly gotten? Does really uh, question or probe the idea of consent? But even when consent is 
fairly gone, even when questions of consent aren't on the table. That, to, to me at least, you know, a married guy who's 50, uh, that to me would not lead some to say, okay, we've checked the consent box, therefore everything should be fine from here on out. And this is why I evoke the idea of the necessary and not conf- sufficient. It always seemed to me that consent was necessary, but of course it wasn't sufficient. My question is, were a lot of people mistaking it as sufficient? Yeah, I think that's one of the major conflicts that we're seeing now. I totally agree with you, of course, that consent is necessary, but not sufficient. But, you know, I I started writing this book or started thinking about this book and then began to do interviews and started writing the whole thing after the Me Too movement. Um, The Me Too movement, I think, was galvanizing and clarifying for two reasons. It both showed us that, you know, we hadn't necessarily come as far as we thought we had in terms of the sexual revolution, full equality, fairness. Um, It also showed us that what we had held up as kind of the solution to some of these problems, you know, we have to ask for consent, we, you know, have to obey these certain strictures around sex, hadn't really solved the problems. So yes, you had stories like Harvey Weinstein, which people talked about as, well, he didn't get consent for what he did. But you also had these cases like the Aziz Ansari story or the story Cat Person. I don't know if you remember that from The New Yorker, wildly popular, um, where women were having sex that was ostensibly consensual and yet still wrong, still depressing, traumatic, awful in some ways. And it became clear then that consent was not the solution to a sort of no-holds-bar sexual culture that was still hurting people despite that being the norm. Right. So I think you used the phrase, you evoke the uh, word, the problem, because I think what you're talking about there, and your book talks about a lot more, what was the problem we were trying to solve? And there, the problem was sexual assault, defining a crime. Um, you know, subjecting the perpetrator of an action to criminal proceedings. And so maybe it did or was at least a leap forward in addressing the criminal aspect of sexual relations. But as you're saying, people mistook that as doing more than it was trying to do. It's as if we define business ethics as, well, just don't commit a Ponzi scheme. (laughs) Right, exactly. You know, it's First of all, consent is incredibly important as a floor, and it you know, even yeah, took us yeah. a while just to get there. But as the Me Too movement showed, as you know, women's sadness and men's sadness and a general sexual malaise has shown, just defining good sex as sex that's not strictly a felony is not what people actually want. People want care and empathy. They want connection and love. And they want higher standards for sex than just not illegal. And so in Rethinking Sex, I suggest that we need to push towards that higher standard rather than just satisfying ourselves with consent. Right. And in your book, um, you go beyond the examples of where there is consent, but there isn't really pleasure. You even address examples where, you know, it's physically pleasurable to some extent or another, but that's not enough. Or the Uh, transitory physical pleasure is not addressing the needs, I think mostly of women, but, you know, as you also point out, men. And that's where the idea of consent isn't even in the conversation for the needs we're really talking about. Right. One of the things that I thought in writing this book, and one of my hopes for this book, was to try and provoke 
conversation, to push the conversation forwards past just did we get consent or not, but towards the bigger and deeper questions. You know, what is sex? What does it mean to us? What should it mean to us? What does it mean to have a good relationship? What does it mean to live ethically and treat yourself and others well? How do we make sex not just permissible, but good? And I think those are the questions that we have so far kind of failed to ask. So you're making an argument, you're putting forward a thesis, and you're sort of arguing against a general ethos. And there's no perfect phrase for the ethos, but something like sex positivity or the totalizing most extreme version of sex positivity of never, um, n- never engaging in critical thought with something that was once shamed. Uh, that may be is the stand, let's call it the stand-in for what your book and what your argument is doing. Questioning, engaging in critical thinking around the idea, the most extreme idea of sex positivity. Is that fair? Yeah, that's exactly right. We're rethinking sex. And specifically in the book, I, I think I call what you're saying an uncritical sex positivity and understanding somewhat shared that all sex is good. The more sex you have, the better. And that, you know, all sex after consent is private and should not, in fact, be critiqued or interrogated or asked questions of. I think that we should ask questions. As someone who's not part of the culture, I, or part of that culture, I always looked at it as, you know, there are always rhetorical gambits and people staking their claims in the maximalist fashion. But I did say to myself, I would imagine that most human beings who are operating under this idea know not to take it too far. And even if we redefine prostitution as sex work, it's not like we're pushing people into sex work or saying that sex work is going to work out for most people. But that's my question to from your research, from talking to people, how far has the uncritical sex positivity gone? So that's a really interesting question. One of the things that I found in interviewing people for this book was a sort of contradiction. Um, When I would ask people what they wanted from sex, what they wanted from their relationships, they would say, well, I I want connection. I want a a relationship. I want care. Maybe I, I want love. But then I would ask them what they thought society was kind of telling them was available or what they should do. And it turns out there were a series of kind of false assumptions or incorrect assumptions about what the sexual culture should look like and what how people should perform that were warping their ability to get what they really wanted. So maybe someone wants love, but instead they think or they feel as though they should think that actually being chill and cool is the way that one should have sex. Um, Maybe they think that sex has meaning and they want it to have meaning, but actually the culture seems like it's telling them that sex isn't really meaningful. It's just another activity like, you know, high-fiving or going skiing. If you have feelings, you're kind of weird, frankly. Or when it comes to desire, perhaps there is an intuition that perhaps some desires may be worse than others, but the culture feels that it can only criticize desire under the framework of consent. There's no other way to question whether something is ethical or not, whether some longings uh, might be healthier than others. Yeah, so kink shaming has become stigmatized 
But if you're engaging in uncritical kink shaming, I guess it means that every sort of kink, every sort of sexual desire is put on the same plane without really thinking, well, there are a lot of sexual desires that I'm not even going to use a subjective term, but are intertwined with violence, let's say, or intertwined with uh, degradation and humiliation. And there's a real resistance to actually think about that and, you know, say uh, for the participants, say, I'm against that. Yeah, so there is one, there's a story that I tell in my book that's, I found kind of sad, but it is eye-opening. I was talking to a woman at a party, as one does, and fun fact, if you ever tell someone that you're writing about sex or researching it in any way, people will just come up to you and tell you sort of their wildest stories, whether you've asked or not. Yeah, it's weird, because I wrote a book about sports what-ifs, and I got the sports version of it. Yours is much more interesting at parties, I gotta say. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Interesting is one one word for it. Yeah. Um, but this woman, I was talking to her, she was telling me about how she was dating this guy. She really liked him. But he choked her during sex. And she didn't really like that. But, you know, that was normal and she shouldn't kink shame him, right? And so, like, is it okay if she feels that she doesn't like this? And I found that so sad, frankly, that the taboo against criticizing um, any sort of sexual desire or any activity outside the bounds of consent, because technically she did consent to this by having sex with him, was so strong that she didn't even feel sure that she could say herself that it was bad. She had to ask me, a total stranger, for permission to not like this does thing. This, does this speak to maybe a lack of uh, self-worth, a inability for the individual to stand up for herself? Or does it, sta- does it speak to, you know, I don't want to put the failing only on the individual. Maybe it's intertwined with the entire ethos of sex positivity, tamping down these instincts where you say, I don't like that. Wait a minute. I'm wrong not to like that. Yeah, I think it's a mix of both. Um, I think that one thing about sex is that it it doesn't rest just on a single person. Sex in some ways is a communal affair. Our, the sex that we have, even the desires that we have, are shaped by our societies and by our communities. And so one thing that I think this woman was experiencing was kind of a, a loss of norms, um, a loss of standards understood by the broader sexual culture. And so she didn't really have any rules outside of herself to reach for, any recourse to say, you know, according to what we both agree on, according to what our society agrees on, this is not good. Um, and so she had to kind of take that all on herself, which, you know, we can say that, you know, everybody should have more agency. Everybody should sort of stand up and walk out the door on their own two feet if they don't like what's going on. But that's not how all of our encounters work. We have to have support from other areas. We have to be able to to call upon something larger. Right, right. And think about norms. I mean, you put your finger on it, right? A lot of effort was spent defining things that were once seen as abnormal as not abnormal. And a vast majority of, the, of those things, thank God, you know, we've reclaimed the idea of perversion and just correctly put it on the spectrum of uh, human desire, right? But if you, if the message is choking or this kind of extreme kind of porn, let's say, 
that's not abnormal. You can't call it abnormal. Well, what is the double negative doing? You're saying that that is a norm and that is normal. So you're almost like laying out a mathematical postulate. We have spent so much time negating the idea of abnormal. Of course, now we no longer have norms. Yeah, it's it's an unfortunate you know state of affairs that I don't think that the feminists who push forward the feminist movement and you know helped push forward the sexual revolution uh, were actually aiming for. I think we should make clear that you know first of all the sexual revolution and the feminist movements were good. Um, I'm not at all saying that we should go back, but there is kind of a delta between what we thought we would achieve and where we've ended up today. We got rid of a lot of stigmas. Um, we got rid of a lot of shaming. And in many ways, that was good. But in some ways, also, this sort of new focus on uncritical sex positivity has raised new stigmas, stigmas against saying that certain things are wrong, stigmas against waiting <laughs> to have sex or withholding in some cases. And I think that that has actually been painful and confusing for a lot of young people, especially women. Christine Emba's new book is Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. It certainly is. It certainly was. Thanks for talking to me, Christine. Thanks for having me. Great conversation. And now the spiel. Marjorie Taylor Greene had no interest in subduing insurrectionists, yet that is exactly how she came off today in Atlanta, Georgia courthouse. She skillfully denied the premise when questioned under oath, the premise being that she should be stricken from the ballot because of something called the Insurrectionist Disqualification Clause. It disqualifies insurrectionists. Strap in for some legal fireworks, the likes of which we haven't seen since Ronald Reagan forgot almost all details of his life under oath. Matthew Chelly questions the witness. Do you have any explanation, Representative Green, for why it is that on January 5th, the day before January 6th, you describe January 6th as our 1776 moment. I don't remember. This is seeing this interview is the first time I've seen it in a long time. I don't remember. Now, prior to January 6, 2021, you spoke publicly on your Facebook page about the transfer of power that would occur on January 6th. You recall that? I don't recall. Okay. You said on a video on your Facebook page that the peaceful transfer of power ought not be allowed to occur. I don't recall. In case the judge did not recall why such a disqualification clause was needed, Chelly, representing a group called Free Speech for People and his co-counsel, brought an historian to the stand. In testimony, the judge criticized as more appropriate to written briefs. And then Green was sworn in. She was made to account for some of her most incendiary statements, despite her lawyer's objections. Nancy Pelosi is guilty of treason. Did you say those words? I said, this is what I was telling you. Marjorie Taylor Greene has said a lot of outrageous things. That doesn't disqualify her from office. She has said a lot of 
unbelievably irresponsible things, again, not a disqualification for office. The disqualification for office would be to tie her words to the actions of the insurrectionists. After she was sworn in on January 3rd and the insurrection that occurred on January 6th, did she encourage it? Did she say things that led to it? Did she give support for it? The free speech for people lawyers, to my eyes, did not tie those things together. They questioned Green often about her repeated references to 1776. Wasn't 1776 an armed rebellion? And when you're saying this is our 1776 moment in the early days of January, didn't you mean an armed rebellion? She answered, no, I did not. And how can you disprove that? 1776 means a lot of things. You could just say I'm talking about the spirit of American general or the founders or trading Ben Simmons. When asked about a 2019 social media post where she talked about her calling for a flood of people to the Capitol, I do think the lawyers of free speech for people made a mistake. It was a poor tactic because as Green pointed out, yes, in 2019, two years before she was sworn in, a bunch of people did flood the nation's capital, but it was peaceful. The inference being, she thought that 2021 would be similarly peaceful, even if she used the verb flood as in we should flood the capital. Really relieved the burden from the Green legal team, which was led by lawyer Jim Bop. Bop. Might have been fortunate as Jim Bop did some eh, kind of C-minus lawyering, like asking a question this way after he played a tape of Green's message to supporters as the Capitol was being overwhelmed. Representative Green, is that you? Yes. Uh, as I look at your face and hear your voice, I think you're scared. Objection. This is, this is not for Mr. Bob to testify about his feelings. That's not a lot. You can't. I'm not a lawyer, but can you do that? No, you can't do that. So, Jim Bob phrased it in the form of a question. How are you feeling? And Representative Green said, you ready for this? I was scared. The lawyers for free speech for people, which as opposed to what? Free speech for eucalyptus trees did make Green look bad. It's not as if points weren't scored, but none that counted toward the game being played, which is to prove that Green literally endorsed insurrection. Take this exchange. Um, So it's true, though, that you liked a post that suggested that, quote, a bullet to the head of Nancy Pelosi would be a quicker way to remove her as Speaker of the House than impeachment, right? Now, you're using a CNN article, which has CNN has lied about me multiple times, and you're using a CNN article. I'm asking you to answer my question. Did you like a post that said it's quicker, that a bullet to the head would be a quicker way to remove Nancy Pelosi from the role of speaker? I have had many people manage my social media account over the years. I have no idea who liked that. Okay. Are you testifying under oath it wasn't you? Just want to be clear on that. I am testifying. I have no idea who liked that comment. Fair enough. It could have been you. Right? I'm telling you, I do not know. I wouldn't want to vote for someone who gave that answer when asked that question, but apparently the people of Georgia's 14th Congressional District do. Green was shown to be dishonest and evasive. You'd think that might hurt her with voters, and so she might not be reelected. But that's different from saying the voters can't even be given the choice to vote for her. A candidate can be dangerous or stupid or incendiary or wrong or unqualified, but 
unless she is a literal insurrectionist in violation of that clause, all of those decisions are up to the voters. Marjorie Taylor Greene might be an emotional insurrectionist, a practical insurrectionist, a sympathizer in her heart of hearts with insurrectionists, but unless she's shown to be a literal insurrectionist, an inspirer, literally inspiring, and telling the insurrectionists to insurrect, there's not much that anyone outside her congressional district can do about it. So when CNN writes, quote, the outcome of this case will reverberate beyond Georgia, because similar challenges are pending against other Republican officials and could be lodged against former President Trump if he runs again in 2024, I get annoyed. There are no reverberations from an instrument that doesn't make a sound. The challenges to the candidacy of Madison Cawthorn, Andy Biggs, Paul Gosar of Arizona, those have already failed. You have to strain pretty hard to hear the hum from the series of failed challenges. Nothing I saw today changed my opinion that Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of the least qualified, most shameful people in my lifetime to be elected to Congress. And nothing I saw today led me to the conclusion that she won't be reelected to that institution come November. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is the Office of State Administrative Hearings Judge for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.